What I've been doing recently with my food, I like, I've been trying to be pescatarian lately. Do you like try anything? Are you like vegan? I'm not vegan. I eat chicken and fish. Chicken and fish? Yeah, I gave up meat many, many, many years ago. And then at that time I was vegetarian. And then I was um, always tired, got lots of headaches. And I went to a health food store and this guy said, you need protein. So I was working on something and they had caterers and, uh, oh, that's my phone making a noise, reminding me that I'm doing this with you. And uh, so we're uh, we're at the lunch and they were serving chicken that day. And I thought, you know what? I'm gonna try just a little bit of chicken and I hope I don't get sick. And I ate it and my body was like, what have you been waiting for all this time? And I couldn't stop eating the chicken. So, um, I always fantasize about being vegan, but I just can't bring myself to do it. I do too. I fantasize about it all the time. I be seeing people online, vegan people, they just seem like they're living a much happier life than I am. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Tabitha Brown is a friend uh, of mine. Oh, she and, is? Yes. Uh, I follow shoot. her on TikTok. Well, she was my last guest on Casa Coco. Obviously, you missed it, Chase. Oh my gosh! I will. But anyway, she uh, she is a friend, and she, when I met her, she shared her whole kind of story with me, becoming vegan and how it's changed her life. That's amazing. Yeah, I want I want to be vegan, but I think I I I love my I love my chicken nuggets. I love my chicken tenders. I love my little hot dogs. <laughs> oh, well, I, uh, you know, I don't eat pork, but when I go to Spain with my husband, who's from there, uh, if pork happens to sneak into certain signature dishes, I, uh, I do eat it. I don't let it stop me from enjoying certain things. Uh, all right, well. Hey everybody, welcome in to my next episode with the legendary, the iconic, the star, Miss Coco Peru. Hello everyone. It's me sitting here in my home talking with Chase, who missed my Casa Coco. <laughs> I have been listening and watching. I just haven't gotten to that one yet. I'm just teasing you. I know <laughs> everything doesn't revolve around me. I'm just joking. But I do love your YouTube channel. I watch your YouTube channel very often. Thank you. I used to be embarrassed when people said that because um, I'm really most proud of my theater shows. But um, so when mm -hmm. people only know me through YouTube, I always think, oh, well, then you don't really know what I do. But I've learned to accept that that's okay that, um, you know, yeah. they appreciate me for another reason. That's how I discovered you. I discovered your shopping videos. Yeah, a lot of and people discovered me that way. It's amazing. It, they're really funny and entertaining and kind of just relaxing to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody that knows me 
you know, personally and closely would think of me as relaxing. But. <laughs> <laughs> things like that relax me. And I was just like, girl, when are we going to get this pet a Tony? <laughs> Let's... It's that time of year again. It is that time of year, which my friend is asking, she wanted me to ask you, are you looking for a Panatoni this year? No. <laughs> no. The only thing I'm doing that revolves around Panatoni is selling merch about the Panatoni. Uh, so I'm encouraging people not to buy Panatonis this year and instead buy my merch and give that away as a gift. Very much to, that. To support me during this pandemic. And, uh, you know, it's just more personal than a Panatoni. Yeah, I know what you mean. And plus, the Panatoni company is not getting the money. You are. And that's what we need. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of felt that way with uh, Celestial Seasonings Tension Tamer Tea. I know they, they saw a spike in sales after I did that video. And, well, I never saw anything. <laughs> they did They did send me a basket of stuff, but that's after I shamed them publicly. When not some thank you. Well, it wasn't that they didn't say thank you. It was that they knew they were aware of me and someone had posted, look what I got in my box of Tension Tamer Tea Cocoa. And it was a little tea, tin tea box. And I wrote back, oh, wow, I don't even have one of those. And they had tagged Celestial Seasonings and Celestial Seasonings wrote, well, Coco, get out to the store and buy your box of tea and you'll get one too. And I wrote back, <laughs> really? How about you sending me one? And so they sent me an entire basket of <laughs> everything. <laughs> uh -huh. That's like... They didn't have to do, but I did appreciate it. That, that was nice of them. Yes. Um, so can you just just tell us about who you are, you know, talk about your plays and other things you do. Like, who is Coco? Oh my God, Chase. I know, that's, that's, that's very broad. How old question. are you, first of all? <laughs> I'm 21. Oh, okay. See, I'm a lot older and I've had, I've been doing drag longer than you've been alive. Very much that. So when you, well, you didn't have to say that. <laughs> I'm but sorry. when you say, who is Coco Peru, that's a 30-year career. That's a big question. It is a very large career. Yeah. So um, I've just an, You've been on... You know, a drag queen slash activist slash storyteller who, when I was your age, well, I was a little bit older when I created Coco, but... Um, grew up in a very different world than you're growing up in Chase. And so I wanted to change the world and I wanted to make it safer for younger LGBT kids that were coming after me. And I thought storytelling is very powerful and it that's how you get into people's hearts and minds is mm -hmm. by telling your story. And I thought, you know, if I presented in drag and embraced everything I've been taught to hate about myself and instead turn around and celebrate it and tell my story and people relate to me, um, that'll change them because they'll realize it's not about what a person looks like or what they're wearing. When you take the time to actually get to know somebody, 
you find you have a lot more in common with them than you might have thought you did. So that was my intention early on. Plus I wanted to be an entertainer, but it was always with this core value of wanting to make the world a safer place. That's amazing that I, I appreciate you for making the world a safer place for people like me and others that are listening. Um, but I do honor you and I do thank you for well, all thank that you've done. Well, I'm, I'm proud of it. I'm not proud like a, in the negative sense of that word, but I feel a, a pride with seeing how much the world has changed. When I was young, there was no queer people on television. And if they were, it wasn't in the best light. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there was no internet back then. So it was very difficult to find other people like you. So um, there were people who wrote books. There were people who were brave enough to open up gay bookstores. Um, and that's where I found novels or I bought a book called Coming Out to Your Parents. So, you know, I was writing on the backs of people who came before me. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a chain that we create where we, you know, you always try to leave uh, the world better than you found it. Exactly. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, little bit about before Coco. So you, you've mentioned you've always wanted to be an entertainer. What, what were you doing before Coco? Were you entertaining before Coco? Started at, I started uh, very young, dressing up and acting like a clown around my house, mm -hmm. uh, putting on shows singing, dancing, uh, you know, just very, you know, creative. And, um, and then I went to college for theater. College. Oh, and then I'm guessing you majored in. I majored in theater. Majored in theater. I am currently going to school for dance. Oh, I oh. loved the dance, the dancers at my school. I wasn't familiar with dance. Well, the only exposure I had to dance as a kid was um, either my parents, when we had enough money, would take me to see a Broadway show, or mm -hmm. the school would organize school trips down to see a show. And I remember we saw dancing. I think I saw that yeah. with, my, my, with my mom. It was the Bob Fosse show. Mm -hmm. And I also, when I was really young, we went to see Alvin Ailey Dance Company. Dream company right there. Yeah, so I think, you know, growing, that was one of the benefits of growing up in New York City was that you were close to that stuff. But um, it wasn't until I went away to college and I went to see the dance shows that the dance department put on that I really got into dance not that I was doing it but I loved watching watching it. I, it. I yeah. envied you know because I have a bad injury on my left leg so I can't you know I can go out dancing not even anymore but I certainly couldn't move like those dancers did and oh boy I envied them I still do every time I just watch somebody I'm just I fall in love with the whole thing me too I think it's such an expressive it's such a beautiful way to 
expressed so much. And that's what really caught my attention was that without even words, just with this music and the way they mm -hmm. move their body, I was, I was feeling things and really, then you add lighting into it and costumes. And, oh, it's so magical. It is. And before dancing, I started doing, I was doing musical theater up to college and then realized singing was not my thing. So I moved on, took away the acting, took away the singing. Well, technically, if you think about it, when you're dancing, you're kind of acting. I, I agree. I, I think the best dancers have, are telling a story, like I said, with their, but in a, just a different format. Very much. And it's just, sometimes you do have to just straight up act on stage if to, because your choreographer wants to like see a situation. So they're going to ask you to straight up act it out. Yeah. And you know what I was, I remembered about certain dancers was like, you could see where they had like blocks in their bodies mm -hmm. and where, where the other ones, the energy flowed right out of their fingertips. And the way they extended their hand, you could see like the difference between someone who's like, it got caught in their wrist, you know, say, or yeah. it got caught somewhere in their hand and it just didn't, it just didn't extend out right through the fingertips. And I always couldn't, I always looked for that in certain dances. It's like, you know, and it really set them apart as the better dancer when that energy just came right through every, you know, through the top of their head and through their fingertips and the bottom of their toes. You know, they were so connected. And I think people should go see dance theater more often. If you're already seeing regular theater, try a dance theater. It's so much more interesting than watching through the computer screen. So oh, I agree. It's, everything is so powerful. much more interesting. The whole theater world is more interesting being in the theater rather than watching it on screen. Well, I get crazy when I'm doing my, my shows and um, young people sit there trying to record it with their phones. So they're completely and, not present yes, in the moment. And I, and then, the moment. and then when I, cut them you know when I asked them to stop doing it and uh, they I remember a few times people will respond they think I'm joking because they're so used to being mm -hmm. able to do it and then when I say no I'm, I'm serious and then they ask they go well my friend couldn't come so I want them to see and it's like no that's the magic of theater you got yeah. here they didn't you get to experience this moment so now I, uh, I actually it became such a problem that before the pandemic, I, uh, I would make an announcement, put your phones away and we're gonna try something new. It's a whole new concept. It's called being present. <laughs> yes, enjoy the moment. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you'll come out for pictures after. That's when y'all can save the moment. In That's what I always say. I, said, I do the photos afterwards. There's no reason why you have to film this now. And well, anyway. That's that. That's it's one of my pet peeves. I am. It's one of my pet peeves as well. Okay, last final icebreaker question. You're gonna. It's a. It's a very provoking question. I ask it to all my friends, and possibly it was my first episode. It was all about this first episode. I'm about to. Here it is. Would you? If someone offered you a certain amount of money, 
would you let them shit on you? Just go number two, right on your chest. Uh, well, how much are we talking? <laughs> uh, that really um, is, you know, I love a good shit story. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> and I, I always encourage people to tell shit stories over my dinner table because it, gets, it gets people laughing. And That's my whole and, first episode. <laughs> yeah, and, and everybody has, you know, a moment that, you know, they're not proud of. But um, I don't know. I like to think that I would say absolutely not. But if it was going to change my life in a major way where I was never going to have to worry again about money. Finances, yeah. I, um, think, I, I think I might allow that. And then, um, you know, quickly run and have bleach sprayed on me and shower it off. <laughs> I don't know. That is the most bizarre question I've ever been asked, Chase. Um, so I, I give you credit for having the guts <laughs> to ask it. But uh, I was... I'm not sure about my answer. But I mean, let's be real. If it was a substantial crazy amount of money life-changing life-changing kind of money uh, I, I probably would say go for it i okay i have gone back and forth on this question all the time so just wondering um why is that even a question <laughs> i i think shit stories are funny as well I know, I, but that's not even a shit story. That's like some bizarre thing. I mean, some people are even into that. And it, I think it starts a really good, really good conversation, but like interesting conversation. I'll tell you, when, when I'm allowed to have company over again, I'm going to ask that. I'm going to say I was asked this question in an interview, and I'm going to ask it of all of my guests. And I, they'll have to go around the table and answer honestly. It, my honest answer would probably, I, I can't do it. I, I can't think about it. I, I, I don't think I can do it. It's going to be a no for me. Well, thanks for saying that now that I said a maybe. <laughs> Make me look like the pig. But also to me, if it's like life-changing amount of money and I'll never have to worry about this again, I just might. <laughs> you would, Chase. Just someone's writing that five million dollar check out honey you'd be you'd be on your back saying go ahead jump on me um, <laughs> let loose <laughs> uh, mm. I, anyway. I don't know just the thought of the action of it actually happening i don't i don't think i can handle it well i agree i don't it's not something i would look forward to but uh, <laughs> i try to put that out of my mind and think about what i'm going to spend that money on Oh boy, I get to get shit on today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to our topic for the yeah, day. Yeah, let's move on, please. <laughs> today we're going to be talking about the Candyman murders. I have no idea what that is. The candy. Okay, so if you've seen the commercial, there's a new movie coming out next year by, oh, uh, I forgot his name. He made Get Out. He wrote that. Mm -hmm. How many centuries? 
Yeah. He, I literally can't, his name just literally just left my head. I love him. But you know who I'm talking about? I know exactly who you're talking about. I'm embarrassed. I can't remember his name. I, Peel? Yeah, yeah. Um, Something Peel. (laughs) It's with a K. Uh, Well, let's move on. It'll pop into my head. Yeah, let's keep going. But we're going to keep, we're going to talk about the Candyman murders. He, terrible man. Let's start off with that. Murdered children. Not great. Is this a true story? This is a true story. It happened around the Halloween time. A uh, Jordan Peele. Jordan Peele. That's his name. Okay. All right. So he's making, on. He's a, making a movie about this? Not. Okay. So there's the Candyman murders, which is what we're talking about. And then there's. And what year did that happen in? This happened in actually the 70s, oh. the early 70s. Okay. I think it from 70 to 72. And it like officially ended in 73. So it's one of America's deadliest serial killers. But the Candyman Jordan Peele is making, I think it's a whole nother situation because I know there's a 90s movie called The Candyman, which is completely different from yeah. what we're talking about. Um, but we're going to be talking about the murderous demon, Dean Coral, which is his name. He, so I'm going to be reading a article by William DeLong, and we're going to kind of go through this and talk about this. Are so, you reading the whole article straight through, or are you um, no, I have stopping my, during it? We're stopping during it. Okay. We're going to stop and talk about it and then keep going. Okay. Okay, so here's how it starts. When Dean Carl was shot to death by his 17-year-old accomplice, the number of boys he killed in two and a half years made him America's most prolific serial killer to date. Okay, and then it goes, it continues, to everyone in his Houston Heights neighborhood a few miles west of downtown Houston, Texas. Dean Carl seemed like a decent, ordinary man. He spent his time at the small candy factory his mother owned in Houston Heights, and got along well with the neighborhood boys. He even gave him free candy to local children, earning his name, the Candyman. So he seemed seemed like a fine person, you know. He, his mom owns a candy store. He's doing great. Friends with the kids in the neighborhood. But let's continue. But behind the smile, Dean Coral hid a deadly secret when he was. M- when he was murdered in 1973 by Elmer Wayne Henley, the young man's confession revealed the horrifying details of Coral's two-and-a-half-year-long killing spree, one that would make him the worst serial killer that America that had ever seen. So we're going to talk about his early life first. The career of Dean Coral. While it is a standard trope in serial killer lore that they're Later, depravity came often be traced back to someone, back to some childhood events or traumas. It is difficult to see anything in what is known about Dean Coral's early life that could have put him on the path to becoming one of America's first serial killers. 
Born in 1939 in Fort Wayne, Indiana, his parents reportedly had never had a happy marriage. They would fight often, and Cora's father was known to be a strict disciplinarian. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit, Coco. Sure. I have no idea what you want me to talk Wait, about. Oh, so you started. We're going to talk about his, just what I, what I just read. The, um, how childhood trauma could trigger something like this is okay growing up hi your parents were nice to you right yeah well yes like okay it seemed i i don't to me becoming a murderer something has to have happened to you that flicks this thing in your head that you want to murder people. Um, uh-huh. He says his parents would fight often and his father was strict. Um, maybe, maybe there's more to his childhood. I, would, I just, to me about murderers, I'm just so curious, what triggered you to do this? and to keep doing it? I have no idea. I mean, I've certainly watched uh, a lot of forensic files and whatnot on television. And I, my mother went through a period of, you know, being obsessed with true crime books because uh, she loves watching court cases. Um, but I think sometimes people are born with some sort of defect in their brain where maybe they, mm -hmm. they don't feel empathy for other people. They don't know how to relate to other people. So other people are just sort of objects to them. To them, yeah. Yeah, you know, and I also, um, I think sometimes people may have a trauma in addition to that brain damage if the trauma is deep enough, it can sort of pervert them in a way that um, they can't control certain, certain uh, thoughts, uh, thoughts but, and wants. But, you know, I, you know, jokingly uh, think, oh, God, I'd love to kill that person because they, you know, threw a piece of garbage on the, you know, out of their the car. Yeah. And I don't think they deserve to live on this earth because <laughs> they were diseased to the earth. You know, that, I go to those places, but that's, that's a fantasy. And that is, I have that part of my brain that functions properly that stops me from acting out on that awful thought. So I, I am assuming that there are people who have um, awful thoughts, but that part of their brain that would make you stop and realize right from wrong is just not, functioning this is not functioning and that, uh you know i've often thought about um priests who who molest young children that's that's another thing to me and i've you mean you know i how do you we we had a priest in our neighborhood i would say in our local church that was inappropriate and i don't think it ever went so far where it was um, he was having sex with boys, but it definitely was 
uncomfortable. Uncom- yeah. You know, and you knew something was not right. But I always thought if, you know, as a, he was clearly a gay man. And I thought, you know, he grew up in a time where being gay was bad. And often gay men were forced into the priesthood because it was the only place where you could have a career. And then if you arrest someone's sexuality from being healthy and from being fully expressed, it then becomes perverted. Mm-hmm. And there's this perversion in their growth as a human being to becoming a healthy, sexual human being. And so this uh, perversion happens almost naturally because of these societal things being forced on yeah, them. Exactly. And so when they're then in a position to be around young children and their parents, oh, sorry about that, that's my phone, and their parents are trusting these men to because they're priests. They're supposed, uh, to, be good people. They're supposed to be safe and holy. Uh, and maybe a certain priest whose sexuality has been arrested at, uh, say, 11 or 12 years of age as they become sexual, well, who are they gonna be attracted to when you know another 11 or 12 year old boy because then they never grew up sexually as an adult. That's just my theory. It's, my theory has always been that we create many of the monsters that, that we uh, are fear. And uh, rather than talking openly and honestly about what might cause this, uh, people, you know, ooh, secret or, you know, sh- you know it's, it's, it makes people uncomfortable and mm-hmm. therefore they don't, it's the never addressed. You know, we don't want to learn. You know, I remember when, um, what's his name? Who was the serial killer that um, was eating young men? um, You know who I mean. I know know exactly who you're talking about. Well, (laughs) he was the people, monster, he's a monster, you know, all the headlines. But I remember watching Oprah Winfrey, maybe it was Oprah, it might have been one of these other talk shows, but they had friends of his or people that he grew up in class with. And they had all noticed signs that he was, troubled, but really troubled, like murdering animals, um, uh, torturing animals at a young age, Mm -hmm. drinking alcohol, bringing alcohol into the classroom and drinking at his desk. And all the kids were like, we all knew about it. How come not one adult stepped in to, uh, you know, know, it was all all secret. No one helped him. So in a way, by not reaching out to someone who was clearly disturbed, we as a society, I think, sometimes are responsible for uh, a monster, although I'm certainly not victim-blaming at all. But I hope all my listeners see how being nice to people will literally change everything for a person. Well, it could. I don't know if that's true either, though, Chase. You I know, think I've been nice to people, and they're just assholes sometimes. So, <laughs> I <don't> know. <laughs> but I will say this: there were people like that lived in our building, and they were they were fine. It was a couple mm-hmm. when I lived in New York City, and I was already with my husband at the time. 
and uh, we both lived in the same building and he couldn't stand this couple. And I couldn't either because I would get on the elevator and say hello to them and they just would kind of ignore you. They never said hello and whatnot. So we got on the elevator one day and then I said hello to them and Rafa, when we got off the elevator, said, why do you keep saying hello to them? You know, they're, they're so rude. They're just they're horrible people. And I said, well, they might be horrible people, but they're not going to affect how I am in the world. And I can still be pleasant and nice to them. How they receive it is their choice, but they're not going to affect me being a pleasant neighbor. Did you ever one day get a hello back? Yes. And then it was like the floodgates open. They became the nicest neighbors. And they were lovely people. I just think they were caught up in that whole New York, Mm -hmm. you know, rush and you're in your own head. In your own head. When I finally broke through to them, they couldn't have been, they were lovely people. Mm -hmm. We became very, uh, not, you know, we were close neighbors. We cared about each other. But uh, I, th- I thought that was a nice lesson to have I learn. Love it when that happens to people. Yeah. When they just they just don't they seem like they don't want to have anything to do with you, but you just keep trying. But I'm not saying go out like you know fight people and be nice to them. Try to fight people, but if it just don't annoy people, but just keep trying. You never know what they might be going through. Yeah, uh, and eventually they'll just break. Well, and I, I told a story. I told a story recently on the Casa Coco that you missed, and uh, <laughs> so I can share it here with you if you'd like. But that's oh. up to you. I don't know if you want to veer off Candyman murders so much. We uh, will get back to Candyman if, yeah, let's get back to Candyman, and we can. We can talk about that later on. Um, okay, so let's continue with the Candyman. We've veered off far enough, I think. So back to the story. Whether this, so we just talked about how his parents fought and his father was very strict. The article continues, whether this resulted in far worse abuse than would have been typical for the commonly accepted corporal punishment methods of the 1940s and 1950s isn't known. After his parents discovered for the second time, they had briefly reconciled following their first divorce in 1946. His mother remarried, this time to a traveling salesman, and the family settled in the small town of Vidor, Texas. Vidor, Texas. Vidor, Texas. Never heard of that place. I live in Texas, if you didn't know. I'm in Dallas. Never heard of this place in Texas before. It's a big state. <laughs> it really is. If I've been looking at maps of it because the debate thing and the whole election thing. And I'm just looking at how gerrymandering works in my, where I live, which is everyone should be doing. Learn what gerrymandering is and how it works where you live. And make sure you go vote. That's another thing. Make sure you go vote. Voting's important. But I completely forgot what my point was. Girl, you were talking about the Candyman murders <laughs> and then you veered off into voting. And you didn't even let me tell my story. Now she's going to go off on her little tangent. Get back to the Candyman. <laughs> Vidor, Texas. Never heard of it. Exactly. <laughs> In school, Coral had, was a well-behaved, if solitary young man 
His grades were decent enough to escape notice either for good or for ill. So he was keeping up a good, a good record. He wasn't showing any signs. And he occasionally dated girls from the neighborhood or school. It was his mother's candy shop, however, that would be the nexus between the seemingly normal story of a typical American boy in the 1950s and the vile monster who by 1973 had sexually brutalized, mutilated, and murdered at least 30 boys between the ages of 13 and 20 in just two and a half years. I, that's too long for me. That's too long and too many people dead. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what you want me to say. It's it's very, it takes your breath away. I don't expect you to say anything. I am kind of like speechless. That's too long, too many, but I feel like back then investigating was a lot harder than it is now. Of course, massive technology difference, knowledge in the crime scene difference. Uh-huh. Let's, let's talk about the Coral Candy Company. Initially starting in the family garage, Pecan Prince, Pecan Prince, the candy company that Coral's mother and stepfather started in the, 19, in the mid-1950s, brought Dean Coral into the candy business from the very start. While his stepfather sold the candy on his sales route and his mother managed to actual manage the actual business, Coral and his younger brother operated the machines that produced the candy that the company sold. After his mother divorced her second husband in 1963, Coral had graduated high school and had been making a candy, making the candy for the family business for years. After a brief two-year stint back in Indiana, Indiana to care for his widowed grandmother, he returned to Houston to help his mother with a new venture. Okay, so to me, it seems like he had a fine upbringing. I wish there was more detail about like what really happened in his childhood. Well, they're giving you broad sweeps of someone's life. I mean, you know, you think about everything that goes on in your own life day to day, minute by minute, Mm -hmm. and all the experiences you have within a 24-hour period. And they're just, you know, that's, these are broad strokes they're giving you. So, you know, we never know what a person's going through. I grew up in the 70s in New York City during the Mm -hmm. Son of Sam murders. And that was... uh, terrifying and how it froze the entire city with fear so i can only imagine what um this i think it was this was happening in the houston area it was happening in the houston area it must have felt like it that is if this whole just knowing there's a murderer out there in your city is scary, because you remember the, the clown epidemic? People across the country are dressing up as clowns. I loved to... that. I kind of did, too. I, was kinda, I thought it was hilarious. I kind of was going out looking for some. I just thought that was so funny. I thought it was... I, But I also thought it was really scary. 
because I saw video, I would see videos all the time where they would be on a dirt road and there's some clowns off the side. That's terrifying. It's so terrifying. But I, I wonder what the point of that whole thing was. Was it to scare people or? Eh. I guess. I guess. It's fun scaring people. It is fun. This interview is scaring me. (laughs) (laughs) Just, uh, I don't know how I would live just knowing there's a mass murderer in my town. Uh, Well, you know, that's that's the whole thing. We don't. We didn't know until it's happening and and then you do everything you can to protect yourself, I guess. Or you just don't know until it's over. My sister left New York City when Son of Sam was uh, killing women in the New York area. So she, uh, she flew down to Florida. She wanted out. I wouldn't blame her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it seemed like the Candyman, he had a, what, what it's telling us, seemed like, okay, his parents were fighting a lot. His parents got divorced. Mom got remarried. I can see how that can be a little shaking because divorce is scary for kids from the kid's perspective. Because, you know, it's yeah. mommy, daddy. Something's, per- something, something happens now that perverts a person's mind. It's about control. Mm-hmm. It's about, it's, it's serving them in some way that we'll just, we can't understand because our brains are functioning differently, I believe. And, uh, you know, I, so I, it's, it's like when I watch documentaries about the Holocaust, I, I've seen so many documentaries. I've read books, I visited uh, a concentration camp. I went to the Anne Frank house. No matter how many times I uh, pay witness to those experiences by, you know, watching the documentary, reading a book, going to a concentration camp, my brain cannot understand how something like that could happen, how people would allow that to happen. And so, you know, our brains just can't uh, figure it out. And so when you're talking about a Candyman murderer and, and trying to understand it, there's a point where you just will never truly understand it. I mean, maybe people who study these people get glimpses into it, but uh, I, I always sit there and go, how can anybody do that? It doesn't click in our, no. in, in our head. There's a, a snap from uh, reality. Okay, continuing. We're, okay, here we go. <laughs> Just how long is this fucking article, Chase? It's not very long. It's, All like right. we said, broad sweeps. Okay. Broad. <laughs> okay, continuing. Calling it the Coral Candy Company, Coral's mother started the business in Houston Heights area the same year, naming Dean Coral the vice president and his younger brother the company secretary treasurer. Ooh, got a little title. Um, other than a brief 10-month period in 1964 when Coral served in the U.S. Army after being drafted, 
which he was honorably discharged under a hardship exception. Coral worked at his mother's company until he was dissolved seven years later. That kind of sucks. He seemed like he had things going for him. He was well, again, it seems like it, but we don't, we're not there. We're not there mm-hmm. uh, figuring we're out not. why he was let go. They probably thought he's, he's strange. He's weird. He doesn't connect with people. Uh, you know, who knows? So they probably, he was let go for a reason. That's, yeah. Um, okay, so we're at where he starts, he gets discharged and he's back at his mother's factory. And it goes, inside the small factory, Core reportedly installed a pool table where employees and the company and their friends, nearly all of them teenaged boys, would congregate through the day. Coral was openly flirtatious and befriended many of them. Okay, so his mom was running the factory. Most of the employees running the floor, cashier, whatever, were teenagers. Good job for a teenager. And then it continues... Among them was Davis Brooks, David Brooks, then just a 12-year-old boy in the sixth grade who, like many other children in the area, was first introduced to Coral with offers of free candy and a place to hang out. Coral began grooming Brooks over a period of two years and soon began sexually abusing the boy, then around 14, and bribing him with gifts and money for his silence. Hmm. Okay, so here's the kicker. That boy, Brooks, he eventually gets Brooks to bring him, bring Coral, the Candyman, other boys so he can rape, murder, and uh, rape and murder them. So at one point, Brooks is getting paid five to ten dollars a lot of money at that time for Brooks to bring children back to Coral and they would kill the victim together which is absolutely psychotic to me I don't understand I mean I of course I don't understand but he was he was paying they were doing like human trafficking basically is what we're looking at yeah, I mean, it happens all the time. It does, and uh, it's, I'm glad nowadays it's... it's you, a, you prey on people who are weak and uh, vulnerable and start twisting their minds and mm-hmm. bring them something. And, you know, people, you know, I think that's the, as humans, we, we have choices to be good or evil and you know the more experiences you have Mm -hmm. that screw with you you tend to veer off towards the evil i guess and then as it continues the candy man lures another boy in was elmer wayne henley who who we know from the very beginning brings the Candyman his ultimate demise by killing the Candyman. Coral also manipulates this boy into 
him bringing in other people. So all three of them, Brooks, the Candyman, and Henley, would uh, murder children. Henley has said that he initially refused the offer because of his family's, he didn't want to do it. He had the thought that saying, this isn't right, I shouldn't do this. But he also thought about his family's financial hardships at the time, so which made him accept the job to kidnap and lure in kids with the Candyman and Brooks. So we have three people working here. It, it just gets darker and darker. I know you're bringing me down, Charlie. But it's <laughs> Halloween. This is scary. <laughs> Let's all get scared. <laughs> well, I, uh, I do think it's uh, always amusing that people are afraid of drag queens or you know, the gay community and not that funny. Yeah. Know, this, this, this story you're sharing makes me feel awfully normal. Normal, did you say? Mm-hmm. How, how does it make you feel normal? No, I mean, I, what I'm saying is that, you know, in the time I grew up, there was so much propaganda against gay and lesbian and trans people, and still is to a certain degree today, as we mm -hmm. see. You know, gay marriage will bring down the country, this kind of propaganda, and really strikes fear in people. Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, and what I'm saying is, I, you know, I always think that oh, people look at my career as being sort of out there or weird or you know, and I probably do scare some people uh, that think you know, oh, I don't want my kid to grow up like that or you know, and I think you know, here I am trying to spread love and joy and make people laugh and. I, guy who works in the candy store is you know killing people it's like working against everything you're doing well no my point is is that you know who's who's the real what's really scary here it's like someone who appears normal or uh the the, the drag queen that sometimes you know the drag lgbt community that some people are so frightened of, mm -hmm. whereas uh, my, my experience of being in the LGBT community for all these years is that we're, we're wonderful. <laughs> Absolutely, and I don't get why people hate us. All they, just literally, if they just take a chance and give a look, they're gonna find it to be so amazing. Yes. But they, everybody wants to turn, turn their backs, anyways. Child, let's continue. Together. Right. <laughs> I realize I have no choice, so just continue. <laughs> Together between December 13th, 1970 and July 25th, 1973, Blurt and Henley would lure at least 28 boys ranging from the age of 13 to 20. Three used Poros, Plymouth, GTX, and white band to entice the boys to come with them with corals using candy, alcohol, or the promise of going to a party to get each teenager inside. That's a question I have. I'm not a big party person. Yeah, I like the occasional party, but for, for you, back then, did you 
just go to parties. No, I was not popular enough, but uh, um, I do believe there was a time where I felt so victimized with the bullying that I almost assumed that role And there was an occasion where I was almost abducted into a car and mm. I, I was just going to, I was made to work as a young kid. My parents, you know, were like, you've got to get a job even, you know, at 12 years of age. Mm -hmm. But, um, and a, another person happened to walk out of his house right before this person pulled me into their car. But I, I thought, what was it about me that uh, looked like a target, you know? Yeah. And I thought, I'm a, I, I thought about it years later because it happened actually twice. There was another time where in Manhattan I was walking with my aunt and my mom and my cousins. And I sort of fell behind because I get very caught up in looking at everything around me. And I yeah. slowed down and some person grabbed me and pulled me away. And I don't know if it was into almost an apartment building or a storefront or what happened, but I, I managed to pull away and ran. I don't even think, and the, here's the other thing I never told my, parents that these two things had happened to me because I was ashamed of being gay and thought that men doing that, you know, I, it was such a s screwed up thing. Mm -hmm. And I thought later as an adult, when I finally embraced who I was and did the drag, it was like all of that bullying and and feeling like a victim kind of disappeared. And so I wonder if like these people who have these instincts to abuse or uh, they must have like a sense of who looks like a victim. Like they're used to being victimized yeah. or bullied or have low self-esteem. And uh, I always thought about that that age what was it about me that made me look vulnerable so it, anyway yeah I'm I'm glad to have never been put in a similar situation I'm very happy that has never happened to me because that's very well scary. I'll make sure it happens during oh. <laughs> this interview you'll have to give me your address I'm sending a clown your way look he Come over here, you're gonna get, you might lose something, lose life. <laughs> um, but to continue, well, what my question was, was it like really that like casual of a thing to just go to a party? Are you even, if, even if you weren't like invited and you just heard something was happening. Uh, that was not my, in my world, I, that never happens. Hmm. My parents were also very strict about my whereabouts. Whereabouts. I would not blame them. Yeah. But I was not allowed to just leave the house and not tell them where I was going. Uh, I also grew up in a small neighborhood where um, it was an island. So you were sort of stuck on an island and it was safe. 
for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was not with, I was not popular as a kid and not in an in crowd and not with those rough kids in my neighborhood. I was more of a nerd and a loner. I did. I was friendly with the kids on my street because they grew up with me. They and they but, know who you are. And so fine. they knew. Yeah. Like for me to play house and pretend to be the mother was completely <laughs> normal to them. So, mm-hmm. uh, cause they grew up with me. So, but, so I was not, um, was not going to parties or anything like that. My parents knew where I was or they trusted me because I was hanging out with a group of kids that were part of the theater group on my, in my little neighborhood. So we, they were, you know, we were good kids. They could trust us. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, and there was no internet back then. So we were always out playing. mm. I'm glad I grew up at that point where, you know, internet and technology was happening, but not enough to keep you inside like 2020. No. And, you know, we also, uh, my parents, especially my mom, she, we would have conversations about, you know, stranger danger and stuff like that. And they taught it in school as well. So they would actually have a professional come to the school and, and they would act out different scenarios uh, of how to you know, yell for help. And so we were taught that, mm-hmm. you know, you don't yeah. talk to strangers, you start screaming immediately if you feel like you're in danger. And so it was always in the back of our uh, minds. Although when that man tried to pull me in his car, I was absolutely frozen in fear. So little, t- little good did it do me. It's, uh-huh. yeah. It's, it's like you learn it, and then once you're actually put in this situation, it's... I was frozen with fear. You, you forget everything. You just... <laughs> yeah. Um, so we find out that Coral, Brooks, and Henley are now all three working together in capturing people, murdering, and raping them. But then something clicks in one of their heads, Henley's head, Wayne Henley, he just, he's decided that this, what they were doing was not correct, was not right. He didn't want to do it anymore. And at this point, they've done 29 children in the next three years. And then we find out that when everything fell apart, Wayne Henley shot Dean Quarrel the candy man, the demon of the 70s, shot and killed him six times with the gun he had taken from the nightstand of his mother's bed, killing him. Killed the candy man, but that's just, I'm so glad it, something else reclicked in somebody else's head. Yeah, maybe as he got older or. Uh, Who knows? Uh, there was the next part of his that's, brain that was still functioning, I guess. I don't know. It, yeah, but, you know, I don't know what makes him click back, but I'm just glad something did and ended this whole thing. But that was the Candyman. Disgusting. Truly disgusting. And, uh, 
pray that um, as we evolve as a society, we we learn how to keep these things from happening. Yeah, I'm not sure we're headed in that direction right now. When right now this morning there was news that some militia group wanted to kidnap the governor of uh, is it Michigan, I think. So it's like it is very. Uh, these yeah, are dark times for me. We, it's, I, it's dark times for a lot of people across America, but which is why we should always get out there and vote. Always, always, always don't be scared. It's something uh, that has to happen. Well, you know, the thing that I learned from the AIDS activists of the 90s is that, uh, you know, change just doesn't happen because you want it to. It's, we, each one of us, are responsible for making the change mm-hmm. that we want. And also, we're each responsible for creating a world that we want to live in. So, um, you know, if you, if you have certain beliefs and you want it to be a certain way, uh, you've got to become active. Because believe me, there are there are people out there that are very active that are on mm-hmm. the other side of things. Um, yeah, it, it is an everybody thing because it stems from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so how are we, how are we going to tie all of this into the Candyman? It's just one bit. I need things to come full circle. Come full circle? Yeah. Let's, okay, so let's find out how the Candyman, no. Let's find out what happens to the other people in Liam Brooks. Probably went to jail. Brooks was convicted of murder and received a life sentence. Six murders... And Henley was convicted of six murders and sentenced to six life sentences. So they all got life in prison. Good. Even after the Mighty Three fell. Which is, which makes me happy. And that's really the end of the article. It's the end of the Candyman. Such a scary even um, term, the Candyman. It is. Because... uh, when you think of how innocent, you know, and how much candy joy could be. candy brings to kids. Yeah, um, and it's just... They use that term to describe someone who did those horrific things. It's really creepy. It's very... It's uneasing. I don't really eat candy nowadays, so that's... I, <laughs> I don't remember the last time I ate a piece Is of candy. Is that how you're wrapping this up? Pretty much. You don't eat. You don't have to worry about the candy man because don't you don't eat candy. That's the whole that. lesson <laughs> I think we've learned from this interview. Don't eat. Don't candy. eat sweets. And They're not good for you, and they could end up leading to you being murdered by a serial killer. And we don't really. Candy's a little bit more expensive nowadays, so people aren't really looking for candy, anyways. <laughs> I uh, oh. fortunately, I like salt. I'm more of a salt person than, than sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm more of a spicy. I like spicy stuff. 
sometimes I do, the only candy I really eat is chocolate and chocolate. Oh, okay. That's it. I like a little pepper in my chocolate. Have you ever tried that before? Yes, I have. I like salts better than the pepper the in pep- my chocolate. Mm-hmm. I've never had salty chocolate before. I'll uh, make sure that clown I'm sending you has it. It has some salty chocolate. Good. Yes. And, and, and before he cuts you up with the knife, he'll cut you some pieces of that chocolate. And he'll give me a second to let me eat it, and then we yes. can move on. <laughs> and then he'll move on to his real course of action. And then I have to ask him if he's going to let anybody shit on him. <laughs> and I have to know his answer before I die. I, I'll allow that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Coco. Thank you so much for this. Well, thank you. I want you to know that that is the most bizarre interview I have done in my 30-year career. Um, I, you know, I you really know tried to make something different for you. Yes, and so you have the honor of knowing that you really, uh, you, you, um, surprised me thank you i i really want to say i didn't want to make it too generic i didn't want to be like oh how do you know the regular drag queen questions how long does it take you to get into drag oh okay i know i understand i understand you you've probably answered that question all your career i have and i will tell you i've never answered that first question you asked about (laughs) caca (laughs) <laughs> and I certainly have never uh, delved into any serial killer stories in an interview. So you really, you really, um, you took me there for a ride. And I'm very happy I did that. Okay. Um, is there anywhere else we can find you? Any upcoming projects from you? Uh, people can find um, me at MissCocoPeru.com. And my store is there with some beautiful new merch. I'm yes. very happy about. And I continue to do my Casa Cocos, and they can uh, look for those if they follow me online on any of the, uh, you know, Instagram, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I am not on TikTok. Is, I just and after I just after watch, watching the Social Dilemma the other night on Netflix, I'm ready to get off all of it. But, um, uh, until yeah. I retire, I will uh, be on social media. Well, that's amazing. I think I thank you so much for being on a show. Well, thank you, Chase, and um, hopefully someday I'll be there in Dallas again. Yes, uh, and then I can actually meet you in person. Yes, I've been there many times. I love Dallas. I come to LA very often. If y'all didn't know, that's currently where she resides. Yeah, well then... Uh, Hopefully I'll be doing a show here in LA and Dallas and you'll get to see me twice. My yes. best bask in my brilliance. Let's all just pray that this pandemic ends so Miss Coco can get back out there. <laughs> yes, because it can... really is all about my career. But it... uh, no, I, I pray that it gets better soon for all of everyone because I think um, if anything we've learned from this pandemic is that Mother Nature is 100% in control control. and all of this illusion that we create uh, 
is just that, an illusion that we're, we're in control. So we must, I believe, humble ourselves a little bit and start taking care of this planet and each other. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> and you guys can always find me on Twitter and Instagram at the underscore Chase Burl. That is spelled T-H-E underscore C-H-A-S-E-B-U-R-L. And you can always follow me. Yeah, do that. And always check out Miss Coco Peru. She's very funny. Make sure you guys check her out. Check out her store. She just released some new merch today. Was it today or yesterday? Yesterday. It was yesterday. She released a lot of cool looking stuff. I'm actually planning on buying something myself. Well, thank you. Um, Yeah, I just reminded myself that I have to do that. Um, I'll remind you too. I'll have that clown bring a little (laughs) note. Oh, bring a note. Let me purchase my... At least spend a little money on me before he he does that final. That final. Um, that final cut. act. Yeah. That <laughs> <final>. <laughs> All right, darling. It was nice hey. meeting you. It was nice meeting you too. Thank All you right. again. All right, sweetie. Bye now. Bye.